Hello and welcome to another Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are for students and practitioners alike to dip into a series of professional and policy issues in order to develop a broader understanding of how architecture and the construction industry works in practice. Today we'll be looking at the transport sector, transport architecture in general, touching on commerce, procurement and management. And we're here at the offices of Chapman Taylor to talk with Peter Farmer, who is director in charge of the transportation sector with over 25 years experience on projects across the world. So thanks very much indeed, Peter. Warm welcome to you. Can I just crack in? We always yep. kind of start these podcasts with this idea about finding out who you are, a bit about your background, where you studied, what got you interested in architecture. Yeah, I um, came to architecture quite late, well, uh, quite late in my school education. I wasn't quite clear what I was, where I was heading. Um, I was interested in design and art and then looked around to what I wanted to do leaving school and stumbled across architecture. So architecture hadn't been part of my life before then. I applied to a number of schools, ended up at Newcastle, which was great fun. It was a big move for me from London, and I really enjoyed myself in my first year. (laughs) Um, Very much so. Newcastle's famous for that. Yes, and didn't do very much work, if I'm honest and got into trouble with the school. However, they allowed me to continue, explained to me about the realities of having to work hard as well as playing hard, but um, in that order. My year tutor at the time also chipped in a um, salient fact that at the end of this, the architects don't get paid that much either, which shocked me a little bit at the time, so I took that away and um, stewed over that for a while. But then I, I put my head down and got more stuck into the course in the second year. And I think I, whilst I had a great time in my first year, I did regret perhaps not taking it more seriously. But I think that's partly a product of leaving home in your first year and, um, and um, going straight to university. And I'm now a great advocate of actually um, perhaps taking a year out before ah, pe- pe- people do. First year out, I worked for Tyne and Weir County Council. I had a fantastic time working for them. They didn't really know how to deal with a student, so they paid me way too much and gave me a fantastic experience. My first project um, that I worked on with a great architect there um, were some small industrial units. So I worked on the, the project from start to on site, so I actually got to see them appearing out of the ground. And I remember walking on site the first time when the steel frames had gone up, and it just blew me away. And that is the point where, if I'm honest, I finally realised this is exactly what I want to do with my life. The idea of putting something, lines on paper in those days with pens and pencils, and seeing it come out of the ground was just such a kick. I recognise it in many respects. Choosing to work for a local authority, I know there's not that many architectural mm-hmm. departments left in local authorities, yeah. but even in those days, there was something, people tried to avoid it and they were still going into private practice, weren't they? What was it about local authority that kind of... If I'm honest, there, there was, I chose to stay in Newcastle. There weren't a great number of jobs around at the time. A lot of the practices were quite small, right. and there was a lot of us fighting for those places. Yeah. The council offered a very handsome salary, but it was a multidisciplinary office, mm. which was actually quite interesting. The, 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 the first office I worked in was a big open plan um, space, which was very daunting on my first day. But in that space were mechanical engineers, structural engineers, and we all, so on the projects, we all worked together. And it was a fantastic experience in that sense to. The, the, the learning curve of the integration of disciplines w- was fantastic. Really? Do you mind if I ask when this was? 
Yeah, well, mid eighties. Mid eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Came back, um, headed back down south. Worked for a practice primarily involved in the leisure and hotel sector. They gave gave me an immense amount of responsibility, which was which was great for a great learning curve. And I remember the partner at the time saying to me, when I had one of my panic attacks, and he said, "Don't worry, if you muck up once, we're right behind you. If you muck up twice, we're right behind you. If you muck up three times, you're never going to be in that position again." And that was great. He, he had faith in me, but he, he also backed me. After a while, though, um, I felt that it was a practice that did fly by the seat of its pants a little bit. And I wanted to, to get experience in a large company who it sounds over-cautious or anal, but did things the right way, had the right processes in place, and um, weren't, weren't always um, rushing from one um, crisis to another. So I, I looked around, um, had several interviews, and ended up at a company called uh, Jeffrey Reed Associates. And I worked th- with them through various name changes for about 20 years. And that's, it was during that, uh, working with that company, where I got into, started getting into transportation. And then about six years ago, Chapman Taylor approached me to come and uh, move and come and head up their transportation group. I was ready for the move but was also because they were involved in the rail sector where previously I'd only been involved in aviation. You casually threw in there that you got, you got into the transportation sector. I mean what, is, what does that mean? How does that happen? By stealth if you like. I started working in the industrial sector so that led me into um, the airport sector by the back door if you like, by the less glamorous side but through I say cargo and maintenance, hangars, then control towers into and then into the more passenger facing areas in um, terminals and then as I say then I moved to Chapman's right, and then right. started because the there's always the conversation about you know how do you get into a sector mm-hmm. I mean because there's, there's obviously a protected world where people mm-hmm. do certain kind of typologies but getting into that well b- quite b- b- mine was through evolution if you like a lot of the people around me my um, peer group some of them made very conscious decisions um, I remember back when I was at university, there was uh, one guy in particular who just made a clear decision. He just wanted to get into the office sector, mm-hmm. and that's what he did. So some people make very clear decisions, whether it's commercial, residential. I'll be honest, I, I went with the flow, and I again, I was lucky enough to land in a sector which I absolutely love. Very so. good. All right, well, are there any particular difficulties in this sector, or, or any kind of early lessons that you learned through your practical experience that you could share with it's, it's, a, it's a, it can be a daunting sector uh, you know, a, a, a toilet refurbishment and reconfiguration and you're having to deal with 10 different stakeholders we've a project recently at St Pancras and I counted out there were um, 18 different stakeholder bodies from planning authorities from heritage authorities asset protection safety um, um, train operating companies that can be very daunting and frustrating I personally really enjoy it. I enjoy that kind of dialogue you have to have with people. To I like unlocking problems. I mean, stakeholder is such a terrible word, isn't it? Could it, could it could be anybody yeah, yeah. and anything. In terms of the your experience, what I'm what I'm trying to say to the listeners is: is there any like maybe one thing, some obviously maybe terrible thing that happened to you, or something that you've learned in the sector that you would, could recommend that somebody not do again, not reinvent the wheel? The biggest thing is it is in the early stages, it sounds very prosaic and dull, is areas. And it's something I have to drum into p- 
people a lot in the team is at the early stages of a project when you're looking at a, a, a project and this can be transport it could be residential offices retail anything and you're looking at that early feasibility stage and your client is trying to work out whether the scheme is viable or not it's all based on the floor areas and the value of the floor area the cost of the, the floor area if you get that wrong by a few percent you, you can make the difference between it be the scheme being viable or not and obviously you're trying to make the scheme viable because you want it to go ahead um, and it's it's yeah, that's because you, you're, you're dealing with kind of big spaces you mean it all adds well, up. No, but even well big spaces so it can add up or a, a whole series of small spaces it's something that you know, fresh out of college is something that's not necessarily appreciated. That ultimately, m- the majority of what we build, yeah. however it's built, has to, it, there's a cost and value side to it. So, are and you that, are you dealing with sorry, to you, but sorry. are you dealing with like footprint area or primarily usable internal internal wall area? Well, that, that's area. that's partly the issue. Is that in the early stages, you're looking at a shape on a pe- on a piece of paper that generally represents the outer outer skin of the building where most clients are interested in what the internal space will be mm, mm. so in time you get to take to understand what allowance to make from the, the external to the internal equally where some of the errors can come but just in the, the physical measurement and calculating and you you'd think today the, the, everything's done in CAD and you just click and there, there comes the error mistakes are still made by making mistakes you learn and then you, you become more cautious and it doesn't have to be that you make a mistake in a particular area and you then never make that mistake again it's it teaches you generally in life to be more careful um, so I also find my time with the younger people in the team trying to get them to avoid making a mistake because I don't want them to make a mistake and upset a, an existing client but I also am aware that I've got to allow them to make a Mm-hmm. mistake it's not going to be too dramatic because it's only by doing that that they're actually going to learn the importance of not making mistakes yeah. you're kind of describing parenthood here yes yeah it's actually it's, I think it's actually more complicated than uh, <laughs> parenthood sometimes there's um, on your website not that I want to you know hold you to this but you, you say uh, if I may uh, you have a key role you personally have a key role in continuing development of the sector related to research math planning mm-hmm. due diligence and sustainability mm-hmm. some pretty strong keywords there is there any yeah. chance you could I mean, not spend too long, but if you just explain what those words are and how you're involved in them, the master planning and the due diligence is very interesting. You've kind of hinted at it already. And then sustainability, precisely because it's one of those sectors, which obviously yeah. is kind of, it's a, it's, it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Well, master planning comes in many forms. Um, to me, it's planning out a development that generally isn't going to be delivered all in one go. So you're building a generational plan, something that's going to probably start and then be developed over a period of time yes it could be a development that's um, a large development that will get delivered all in one go but generally it's not and within the master plan the set of skills that you you learn over a period of time about how fixed the master plan is and generally how unfixed it is the due, due diligence side is often what we're asked to do is to look at other people's work um, to review it to critique it to peer review it um, in design terms? or technical? In design terms, technical terms. Sometimes we take on a design at a late, later stage. It may have gone through concept, right. so we have to do a, a due diligence on that. Equally, when a, an investor is looking to acquire a, an asset, 
I was involved in the purchase of Budapest Airport, Exeter, etc., where the investors are coming in and saying, you know, what's this asset really worth to me? Sorry, that's quite a that's quite a big statement. What's this asset worth to me? I mean, worth as yeah. in an investment, worth as as, in, as an investment. Yeah, but, but it's not just bricks yeah. and mortar. Uh, a piece of land has an asset uh, has an asset value if you were to close it down and redevelop it for um, residential. Then you're looking at you know what what are the rental return, potential rental returns? How much can you increase the capacity of an asset? How much? How many more passengers can you get through a station? One of the misconceptions of transport elements, pretty much internationally, is that um, the commercial elements within stations and airports are sort of added value, where actually they're core value. Um, the majority of airports would not be able to afford to operate without the commercial elements. What they gain from pure aviation, or in the case of stations, purely um, train operating, does not actually support the running of St Pancras Station, for example. The added commercial um, income is the thing that ought, that makes helps the balance the books and it's the same in aviation all right and, and sorry in terms of sustainability sustainability actually is when you when we were talking earlier about challenges sustainability is probably the biggest challenge we've got in in, in transport generally to try and make the facilities we design we can't i can't influence how the plane is powered i can't change people's propensity to travel what i can do is make the facilities and the master plans we design as sustainable as possible and that does go to the master plan level looking at reducing taxing distances for aircraft but making the buildings as as sustainable as possible and and also um you know lobbying the industry generally to try to improve that so i think that's probably one of the the biggest challenges and it's definitely going to be the biggest challenge for all transport for the for for the immediate future as an architect there are things you can do but we can work hard, as hard as we can to actually exceed um, expectations in terms of sustainability within the right, sector I'm flitting about a bit so I hope you don't mind right. no, um, okay. moving on to a question about uh, framework agreements really based on the fact that I read that you were involved in the early stages of framework agreements when you worked with BAA and then you worked on projects outside uh, the BAA framework obviously so can you just, again, for the listeners, just explain what a framework is, but okay. also, you know, how you've used them and what the pros and cons. How, how, how many hours have you got? Um, <laughs> framework agreements are very, very common in the infrastructure sector generally. They they serve many purposes. One of them is that within EU regulations, if you tender a project, if you're a, a, um, a company that's associated particularly with local authorities or government, you need to tender it European-wide. So one of the advantages of a framework is you do that and you create a framework that has a life of five, six or seven years. You do that once. Through that process, you select a number of, say, in this case, say, architects. And it's only that pool you need to go to to actually tender the projects you need to do for that stated period, um, however many years it might be. So it means that not every project that, say, Heathrow are doing, they're not having to tender to... Uh, 3,000 different um, architectural practices. What it does, it helps build relationships. So you start to get familiar with your client's needs. You build that commercial relationship so you understand how many people you need to employ, uh, what cost to service their needs, provided they can be clear about um, their, their pipeline of work. 
th there are downsides, which is that once you've selected your five architects, you're stuck with them. And if they don't turn out to be quite as good as you'd hoped, or you could argue that over a period of time, does that, does that pool of consultants become stale? So a lot of frameworks um, have facilities for encouraging innovation and freshness to, to, to keep that alive and also um, on, on the commercial basis. And, and the, the kind of procurement routes, uh, is, there a, is it the good old-fashioned traditional, are you in charge of this whole kit and caboodle or is the design and build involved in this process? Um, again, it varies. Some frameworks will um, involve a uh, a framework for consultants and a separate one for contractors and then you work with them there's neither an agreement to work with them or those contractors bring on their own consultants some frameworks are a linked consultant and contractor framework so we would um, go into that framework with a contractor to do the design and delivery okay okay you personally are credited with key knowledge in courts, political and business drivers of projects and multiple stakeholders and complex design and delivery teams. You hinted at the stakeholder mm -hmm. thing earlier on. Could you give us a, 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 you know, a short, snappy example of this and how do you deal with the complexity? We're employed by HS1 The Station. There's a need for to, to expand Eurostar's capacity because their business is growing, they've got new routes. So immediately there, you have you have a contractual relationship with the client, but they're trying to facilitate a, a change for, for one of their customers, if you like. Within that, to achieve that, we had to develop the design and discuss it with the French Border Force, because the French Border Force are there in St Pancras, the UK Border Force, police, planning, heritage, because it's a grade one listed building, and that was one of the biggest influences on the design, actually. So it's getting into the heads of all of these types of people you're, you're having to satisfy them all and still achieve the core aim which was this increase in capacity and in, in some instances not that one maybe you could you could argue some of these stake some stakeholders do not want things to happen so it's a question of how you persuade them that this is a good thing to happen you have to negotiate and see what you can offer back to some of some other parties to uh, make a project happen. You're obviously doing this in conjunction with your client and other other uh, parties, planning consultants, whoever it might be. But working out how to undo some of these knots, I find fascinating. So you're like acting as a I don't know, mediator. Yeah. When we talk about commercial commercialism, commerciality, retail, whatever it is, um, it's something you were mentioning in mm -hmm. terms of airport design. There's a certain kind of reticence that that's not architecture. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The snobbishness that, oh my God, you're mm -hmm. dealing with profitability and all mm -hmm. that. How do you content yourself with that? Firstly, I'd say that um, there are many times I wish I was back at university not having to deal with a lot of the commercial pressures we have to. And I, I would say that to students, enjoy that as much as you can. It'll be explained to you why it's important when you, when you come out. A commercial constraint is just another one to deal with. And in reality, all projects have a budget. You, you, uh, you'd be very lucky if you get a project where somebody's turning around to you and said, you can do what you like, and you can spend as much as you like, off you go. Um, so you, know, you have to, in some ways, be this kind of corporate advisor you, as much you, as... You, you are, and again, I don't have a problem with that because I appreciate that I've learned that these projects have a commercial imperative as much as um, I would like them to be just things of 
pure beauty. I think one of the things that I come back to, though, is that all of these environments are about people. And no commercial environment is going to be successful if people aren't happy, if people aren't enjoying themselves. So actually, what you, some people can look at some of the work we do and see it as very hard-edged commercial, but it's actually people-focused. You can't force somebody to spend. You can't force somebody to eat and drink. I, I see the commercial facilities within transport hubs for the good and the enjoyment of the um, the travelling or the visiting public. Yeah. That's what makes a successful commercial environment. Well, it's an interesting juxtaposition with leisure and retail, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's even more so today with the changes that society has gone through in the, the, the recent two generations. It's even more that kind of link of leisure, retail and food and beverage with public environments. We all know that the, the high streets are struggling, shopping centres are struggling, people are shopping differently online. So it's even more imperative that we design transport environments for happiness and joy and ease of mind that then people choose to spend. I've got a question here which I've scribbled down about McKinsey's, mm-hmm. I've just done a report, very recent report about the changing face of uh, not just, not just the, the, the street but mm-hmm. the shopping mall. And they say that e-commerce will not eliminate the shopping mall, but shopping malls will change and adapt. This is describing the fact that sometimes people are not going to go out mm-hmm. physically to shop, and they're going to do it online. People have to physically go to travel. So they do, yes. Is it changing that much? It, it, it is to a degree. I mean, you could, you could argue people have to go to an airport, so, and they have to dwell, as you say, f- for an hour or so. So they will take the advantage to have lunch there or breakfast there. So that you could argue there's an element of captive audience, perhaps less so sometimes in rail stations. Although, conversely, we've actually seen, particularly in London, for example, and some other UK cities, in hub stations where when you provide better facilities, people are gravitating to the station earlier. So people will actually think, well, I, I know I can get something decent to eat yeah, at yeah, yeah. St Pancras now, so I'll actually go, I will actually choose to go there an yeah. hour earlier. Well, there was some so, weird statistic maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, about Liverpool Street where they analysed the people who were in the station and only about 25% were actually travelling. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, increasingly, the income the stations are achieving, 25 to 30 to 40% of that is coming from non-travelling footfall. Harry Selfridge had a, had a quote. His original concept of Selfridges was, wasn't about a shop, wasn't about commerce and buying and selling. It was about experience. And his vision was that you could go there and have fun and enjoy yourself. Almost like a promenade down the, the seafront. You, you go there and you wander around and take in the sights. And then commerce was a adjunct to that. That is the way I view that particularly airport terminals and stations are already going that way. So is there is there still a connection? I mean, I don't really know much about this area at all, and I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but never bothered to mm-hmm. find out about it. But there is still a connection between the physical shop front, even though there's e-commerce going on. So, I mean, like you're saying, you're in a, you're in a street or a shopping mall or a station mall, and you... By the presence of the shop, by the presence will give of the you that subliminal recognition that maybe yeah. when you go home you might shop online again. Yeah, increasingly, you know, shops are becoming almost showrooms. Yes, there is a there is still elements of transacting, and there's within transport environments there's 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 always the need for essentials. You've forgotten your mm. converter plug or um, 
your aspirins or whatever it might be. So there's always that essential element. The generational change of um, personal um, uh, devices has meant the introduction of two new two new steps into the whole transacting process, which actually is a problem for bricks and mortar shops, which is you go through all of this, I think I want to buy, I go in, I touch and I feel and might try it on or whatever. Recent generations, particularly the, the generation we termed Z generation, have introduced two more steps at the latter stage. And even though they might have done their early research and they've, they've thought about it, they've gone in and tested, they then go back and want just double check. Is that what I want? Am I getting it for the right price? Can I get it cheaper online, whatever? Or can I get it cheaper online there or cheaper online there? Um, so they, they will often leave the premises and do that checking process. And at that point, the train's called, the plane's called, and they're off. And that um, bricks and mortar location has lost that sale. So then there's a challenge within that environment to say, no, no, stay here, have a cup of coffee, have a glass of wine or something whilst you whilst you check. Here's an iPad, checking it, check it on the iPad. So there's a challenge there. There's a there's a further step which is right at the end. If you can actually convert the, the purchase is this element of sharing. Now, it's not universal, but transact successfully and happily with a customer and they will then shout about it. And that then... Is a, is a further advantage to that bricks and mortar location. So does that mean that you're like reading sociology magazines? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I've, I've got particularly fascinating, I've, t- I've talked at various conferences particularly about the transition from the millennials to the Z generation being the first generation to know nothing but a personal phone. And there are socio-political negatives, but I've also seen some massive positives that have come out of, 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 of that. And a lot of those are influencing how we're designing public environments now. Designing a very different, yeah, for a very different group of people, a very influential group. Give me a clue. Well, I mean, you know, just very anecdotally, you know, say there's that changes to the the whole um, purchase process. There's the, the generations, you know, this is obviously you know, broad sweeping statements. They're very much more globally aware than. Um, my generation were. The, some of the downsides are, they, I think they're a very cautious uh, generation. Brand loyalty is different. Their value structures are more about sustainability, uh, p- proper provenance. So those big brands that have managed to truly follow that route are surviving. Those that don't will fall uh, falling by the wayside. Um, I, I mentioned wayfinding and sort of mm-hmm. thing, and that became a conversation about airports um, maybe 20 years ago, didn't it? 15 years ago. Um, and it became a separate consultancy industry mm-hmm. of wayfinders. And I'm just wondering, in terms of the, what you discussed about the individual being cherished by the retail industry and that diversity discussion, mm-hmm. and yet wayfinding is this kind of universal, we can all find, everybody can find their way. Is it um, in, in, in public, gigantic public? Well, there shouldn't be. Again, if. I'm a strong believer in it. everything needs to harmonise. So we do a bit of wayfinding here. Um, we do commercial design here. Everything has to come together in a happy, in a happy balance. So within a train station, you have to give people the information they need to de-stress them in good time that they know where they're going, and that it doesn't conflict with commercial messages or whatever it might be. Wayfinding, when when we talk about wayfinding, people think about signs. Wayfinding is a lot more than that. Um, in some respects, if you have to stick up a sign, you failed. In my view, you've you failed to a degree as an architect. Yep. Wayfinding should be intuitive as, as, as intuitive as possible. 
the, the other aspect which is again challenges is we're dealing in these public environments with a with an aging population there's a bit of an obsession of the um, transport sector at the moment about dealing with it sounds a bit of a, a curative term but PRMs persons of restricted mobility now if you talk about people with restricted mobility in the rail sector, that's everybody with a suitcase. But really, what people are talking about are the immediate jump is to people with restricted, physical restricted mobility, wheelchair, crutches, whatever it might be. But actually, what we've realised in recent years is that the demographic isn't as simple as that, is that we're actually living to older age we're actually living more healthily. So actually, proportionally, the number of physically restricted people is not necessarily going up quite so much. It's actually cognitive issues that we're, the, the population is increasingly have. So that's a massive challenge to this whole wayfinding issue, is how do we cater for people with cognitive issues in public environments? So again, that way you're then starting to look for ways of leading people rather than having to tell people and that is a real challenge and it's a real challenge in those situations where people might only go to that environment once a year once in their lifetime two or three times even once a week if it's a very familiar home environment you can you can put you can start overlaying physical signs and and, um, signals how do you achieve that in a public environment where somebody's only to walk into for the first time there's, there's not uh, there's not the familiarity there's there's more confusion so that is a, is a, is a big challenge for us at the moment I, and we don't have all the answers right. so does that imply that you know stations airports and that kind of thing ought to be or would would benefit from being reasonably similar across the world in as much as you become acclimatized to it you know I'm, I'm always I'm always yeah. interested in the whole conversation about clone towns C-L-O-N-E clone towns where every town is meant to look the same obviously mm-hmm. it doesn't but I'm always reassured by that you know I travel abroad mm-hmm. these days and you know you get off in Brussels or you get off in Kuala Lumpur mm-hmm. and you kind of you're fairly content with the fact yeah. you know where the taxi rank is you know where these well I, I always think back to the pictogram that show the indicates exit which is a, a, a square it's yeah. got one side missing with an arrow yeah. That is pretty much across all cultures now understood yeah. as being exit. Yeah. How's that happen? So yeah, there there is an element of familiarity which I think is important. But how do you overlay that with cultural differences, historic fabrics? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Fair enough. I've got a final question here, which um, again you may want to answer or not. But it's about claims that Network Rail intends to sell off its railway arches. I just was reading. Well, it has done. It's in a company called Archco. Um, so we we working with um, Network Rail on a lot of arch projects. They've chosen to sell it off. It's it's a, it's a tricky one. Personally, um, and this is a very personal. It's not a Chapman Taylor view. Um, Network Rail is a Quango, um, yeah, a government body. Um, so that investment is now going back into the, the rail network. But there is an argument to say it's it's you know, once sold and that's it. You know there was an income that was coming from it. Also. Arches, by their very nature, were they're often incubator units for um, small marginal businesses. Um, I, I can't speak for Archco. I, I would hope that there's a degree of um, stewardship that they have, an attitude of stewardship to their tenants, um, because it would be very easy to um, you know, gentrify these. The, and where, where do these marginal startup, low-cost businesses go to? 
I'm no, not, it's fair I'm enough. Not, I'm not privy I mean, to the surprisingly uh, how political architecture has become, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in the transport sector. I mean, obviously the coal drop yards and Kings Cross area. There hasn't been such a significant kind of complaint mm-hmm. about gentrification mm-hmm. because it's actually quite successful, isn't it? Uh, like I, I think I started with this conversation, which is that you know, like when somebody says, "Oh, they're a commercial architect," that's always been mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a residential yeah. architect, you know, and there's a there's a kudos. And then there's this snobbishness. Yep. So, you. and I would challenge anybody to really show me a project, projects, or very many projects, which don't have a degree of commercialism uh, to them. I've had criticisms about this, but I think often it comes from a lack of appreciation of how our society is structured and how projects are structured. An art gallery has a has a commercial side to it. Um, train station does. It's a, it's a, it's a purely it should be a purely public um, passenger focused facility, but it has it has to repair the roof. It has to maintain itself. It has to also provide you with food, water, the ability to buy a bunch of flowers if you want to, a card because you've forgotten somebody's birthday. So there's a, there's 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 two sides to commercialism, and you can look at it as also as providing what people want yeah. okay. and Very need. Good. Very good. Even churches have to take collections. Yes. So, okay, on that note, we have to bring this conversation to an end, I'm afraid. Fascinating though it was. Thanks to Peter Farmer of Chapman Taylor. Uh, all of you out there, remember to check out our archive on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if there's any requests for topics, please contact me on austin.williams at kingston.ac.uk. That's all for now. See you next time on the Professional Practice Podcasts. <laughs>